In this session, we're going to consider Muhammad's reactions and responses to rejection. And then the next one, we'll look at Jesus and how he responded to rejection. As it happened, both Jesus and Muhammad had a great deal of rejection in their lives, but you couldn't imagine two different responses than you'd find in those two people's lives. Uh, the framework that I'm looking at this through, the lens that I'm using to look at this, is the work of Noel and Phil Gibson, who did uh, quite a lot of important uh, early work in, in spiritual warfare and how to set people free from traumas and hurts that they'd experienced in their lives. And they developed the idea that the rejection itself, an experience of rejection, is one of the great roots of spiritual oppression in people's lives. It's like a, a trunk that grows up and branches out into three main branches. The first branch is uh, self-rejection. So if someone's been rejected, one possible response is self-rejection. You rejected me and you were right. And people that suffer from self-rejection might show low self-image, a sense of inferiority, sadness, grief, depression, self-condemnation, fear of failure, fear of others, anxiety, negativity, self-hatred, even suicide and despair. A second response to rejection is self-validation, measures to counter the fear of, of being rejected. That's like, um, you said I was no good and uh, I'm going to prove that I'm okay. And these could be striving, um, uh, trying to prove yourself, performance focus, uh, or it could be uh, withdrawal, independence, cutting other people off, self-justifying, uh, narcissism, kind of self-idolatry, pride, e egotism, perfectionism, another feature of self-validation. And the third one is aggressive reactions. You said I'm no good and I'm going to show you. Uh, so this could be uh, argumentativeness with others, uh, refusing comfort, rejection of others, harshness, swearing, uh, even violence, defiance, comforting yourself by hurting other people. So they're the, the three responses of rejection. Um, self-rejection, self-validation and aggression. And what's very interesting is that people that experience regression will often show or have experienced uh, rejection will often show all three responses. Sometimes they'll go from hating themselves to hating others to trying to prove themselves. And uh, if you meet someone who's suffered a lot of rejection in your life, you'll often see these, these different features uh, really as a big part of their personality. They're all different ways in which Satan tries to, to destroy us really. So there's this bitter fruit of an experience of rejection, a bitter root of an experience of rejection that brings all these fruit into people's lives. And my question is, is it possible that Muhammad showed any of these characteristics? And what about Jesus? Did he respond to rejection in any of these ways? Well, let's look at Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 570 AD in an Arab tribe in Mecca. And the story really begins before he was born, the story of rejection, because his father... Abdullah um, uh, bin Abd al-Muttalib was one of a, a large number of sons and at a certain point his father had made a vow that he would sacrifice one of his sons if something happened and it happened and so one of his sons was supposed to be sacrificed. They drew lots and it fell to Ab Abdullah to be sacrificed. So um, already you might say in Muhammad's family background there was an experience of rejection that is his father discovered that his his grandfather was going to sacrifice him. And uh, um, as it happens, someone intervened and persuaded the grandfather to sacrifice 99 camels instead of Abdullah. So the sacrifice also is spiritually significant because it's a dedication to a god, of course. 
So the father should have been slaughtered in the name of a God and instead these camels were. So there's already a, a spiritual dedication and an experience of a deep experience of rejection that affected his father. Well, later, um, after his father and his mother married, uh, the mother became pregnant with Muhammad and the father died. Now, the, the, you might say the official story is that the father died during pregnancy and then Muhammad was born already orphaned. And soon after, or a few years later, in fact, his mother died. But there's an alternative narrative uh, that, in fact, the father died well before uh, Muhammad was born. And um, some Islamic stories suggest that he was in gestation for a couple of years. So that explains the, the time gap between um, the death of the father and the, uh, and the birth of Muhammad. But, uh, the, uh, but, but, uh, but Muhammad also heard complaints about him later in life that he was, a, he was uh, illegitimate. And uh, he responded by saying that, in fact... Not only was he not illegitimate, but there had never been an illegitimate ancestor down his line of descent all the way back from Adam. So this was a, an issue for him later, questions about his, his legitimacy. Um, he was fostered out by his mother while he was young. It's a common practice in Arab tribes at the time and actually not very healthy psychologically for the children not to be brought up and cared for by their own parents. And in any case, his mother died. Then he was brought up by his grandfather. That's the one who'd been planning to sacrifice his father. And after a while, his father died. So he was really left alone. And uh, he was taken into the care of his uncle. And uh, his uncle, Abu Talib, not the wealthiest of, of, in, of the sons in that family, um, looked after Muhammad and, and did actually uh, care for him. Um, but all that he could offer Muhammad was the work of herding sheep. So he was a sheep herder, which is a very low... Um, on the tree, if you like, of social status in, in Mecca at that time. Uh, so Muhammad's family was quite powerful, but he ends up being the weakest member of the family and in quite an inferior position. Also, uh, we know uh, that Mah Muhammad was not all that uh, popular with his uh, uncles, other relatives. He was not the favorite nephew. Um, in fact, he, there was one uncle that he called later Abu Lahab, which means father of the flame. That's to indicate what his destiny would be. And um, the Quran in 111, verse, chapter 111, uh, is, uh, that chapter is dedicated to Abu Lahab and it says, Perish the hands of Abu Lahab, perish he, his wealth avails him not, neither what he's earned. He shall roast at a flaming fire and his wife, that carrier of firewood, upon her neck a rope of palm fire. So Muhammad um, had this verse saying that his father, was, his, his uncle, was going to roast in hell. And um, Abu Lahab's wife um, was something of a poetess herself, and she made a response. We reject the reprobate, his words we repudiate, his religion we loathe and hate. Uh, so Muhammad and his relatives didn't get on particularly well, and he wasn't uh, very much of a favorite in his family. Later on, being a somewhat uh, vulnerable person without the protection of parents, and in Arab society, being protected was everything. Everyone was... Everything was based on client protection relationships and you needed a more powerful person to look after you all the time. And being quite vulnerable, it took him a while to get mar married. He was 25 when Khatija, who was an older widow, uh, married him. And uh, it's an interesting story in the, in the biography of Muhammad. We read that she had to get her father drunk in order to get him to marry her, even though she was a widow. Uh, she still needed him to perform the ceremony, the father, but she got the father drunk, dressed him up in his sort of wedding suit. And when the father uh, recovered, came to his senses, he was really, really angry that her daughter had married Muhammad. So you could call that another rejection experience, uh, to have to make your father-in-law drunk uh, to make the marriage happen. 
Now, in Arab culture, a man would pay a price for a bride, and she was effectively one of his possessions, even to the point where he could leave her as part of his inheritance to his heir. And this was a very different marriage. Uh, Kathija was wealthy, a woman of distinction. She was older, not quite clear how much older, and uh, he was the, the weaker party in that relationship. So again, in cultural terms, uh, not very affirming uh, as an experience, although he was, it seems that he was very grateful for her for having taken him on, and uh, she really was the one that uh, gave him a base to, to develop his prophetic career in, in due course. There was also uh, a lot of disappointment uh, in Muhammad's experience as a parent. Now, when I say rejection, sometimes rejection is an individual person rejecting you. But sometimes you can feel rejected when life deals you a bad deal. Like uh, many orphans feel rejected because they don't have that affirmation of their own parents or people that are bereaved. I've met a number of people over the years who've lost a parent or a loved one or a child and they've walked away from God because they felt that life has rejected them or, or God has rejected them. Well, Muhammad and Khatija had six or by some accounts seven children together. Three or four of them were sons, but all the sons died young, so he had no male heir. So that's another minus, really, in his family arrangements. And um, so he has a lot of pain, painful features in his, in his upbringing. Um, the threatened sacrifice of his father, uh, the father dying at some time before he was born, his mother dying, being fostered out, his grandfather dying, uh, the difficult circumstances of his marriage, um, the rejection and even hatred and ridicule of his relatives. Well, when Muhammad was about 40 years old, about 15 years after marrying Khatija, uh, he began to get visitations from a spirit that he identified as the angel Gabriel, Jibril. And uh, he found these extremely distressing, in fact, and there's evidence that he even contemplated suicide. He says, I'll go to the top of a mountain and throw myself down so that I can kill myself and gain rest. He was tormented uh, by these visitations. But his wife, Katija, comforted him. She took him to her cousin, Wakara, who said to him that he was a prophet. And then the revelation stopped for a while. And again, he had suicidal thoughts and thought of throwing himself off a mountain. But Jibril came to him and said, you are the messenger from Allah. So he was comforted by that word. And uh, Jibril said that God has not forsaken him. Well, he begins to get some converts who believe in him and in, in his message. Khatija is the first, his wife, uh, but then also his young cousin Ali uh, joins him and then gradually others, and they're mostly slaves and freed slaves and very poor people. So a, group, a bunch of outcasts and, uh, and not influential people in the tribe, basically, or in Mecca begin to join him. So at first, this religion is, uh, is kept secret, but after three years, Muhammad gets word from Allah that he should share it with his relatives and makes it public. And Ali declares his hand. He says uh, to Muhammad, I will be your helper. And at first, the, the fellow tribes people began to listen to Muhammad. They were interested in what he had to say. But he began to say bad things about their gods. And so they rejected him. He, he and his band became a despised minority. And even uh, some of his followers were, were beaten up. And his uncle Abu Talib protected him and looked after him. In fact, the pagans approached Abu Talib and said, Oh, Abu Talib, your Nenefi has cursed our gods, insulted our religion, mocked our way of life. Either you must stop him or you must let us get at him. So they're saying, we want to deal with him, to kill him, and we'd like your permission to do it. But the uncle uh, wouldn't let them do it. And then the Muslims were attacked uh, 
Uh, they tried to lead the Muslims away from their faith, persecuting them. There was an economic and social boycott or commerce and intermarriage was forbidden. There was resentment against Muhammad because he was bringing the divisions in the tribe in Mecca. And um, they would mock him. And instead of calling Muhammad, they called him Mudamam, which means a reprobate. So they made fun of his names of his name. But despite this, Islam begins to grow slowly and picks up a few influential people, um, uh, Umar and also his uncle Hamza and the merchant Abu Bakr, but mainly they're still uh, slaves and unimportant people. They were quite vulnerable. They, were, they came under a lot of pressure. They were persecuted. So there was a lot of rejection. And Muhammad also had dirt thrown on him. Someone threw animal intestines on him when he was praying. Uh, one of his followers, Bilal, was being tortured by his master. And as he was tortured, Bilal was crying out, One, one, there's only one God. And uh, so Abu Bakr, who was wealthy, helped to rescue a few of them. But it wasn't, it wasn't, very, wasn't very good. Now, Muhammad continues to have self-doubts. Um, they offered, the, the pagans offered him a deal. If only he would, uh, let, if he would worship their gods, they would worship his Allah. He wouldn't accept this. To you, your religion. Uh, to me, my religion, he said. But he must have hesitated because there's a story that he received a verse in, in chapter 53 um, that, that referred to the pagan goddesses of, uh, of, um, of Mecca. This is a verse that was called the, uh, the satanic verses. These goddesses, the verse says, are the exalted ones whose intercession is approved. Now, the heathen really liked this idea that Muhammad was praising their gods and some of them begin to... Um, you know, come to Islam. They're interested in it. But the angel Jibril Gabriel appears and rebukes Muhammad and uh, he's told that this is a verse from Satan, the satanic verses. And Muhammad then announces the verse had been cancelled. Um, this he was made fun of even more by the Quraysh, the people of Mecca. They became more violently hostile than ever. And then, because this is quite a disappointing turn of events, Muhammad got a verse, chapter 22, verse 52, that said that every prophet before Muhammad had been led astray by Satan at some time or other. So, in fact, this experience of the satanic verses proved that he was a prophet in a long line of prophets. So he takes a mark of shame and turns it into a mark of distinction. People accused him of being illegitimate, and he said, no, I'm not illegitimate all the way back to Adam. People said he was a shepherd boy, and later he says, every prophet before me has been a shepherd boy. They accuse him of getting satanic verses, and he says, every prophet has had verses from Satan. So he's validating himself. He's, he's, he's demonstrating that he's okay. Not only that, but Allah speaks to him and says that he has a remarkable character, that he doesn't make errors, that he's a man of integrity. Chapter 68, you are not a man possessed. So they were saying, you're, you're possessed by demons, but, 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 um, but Allah says to him, you have a fantastic morality. And then in, in chapter 53, by the star when it plunges, your comrade is not astray, neither errs nor speaks he out of uh, caprice, that of his own, own desires. <clears throat> so we have these traditions uh, that are coming up in the life of Muhammad where he speaks about the superiority of himself, of his race, his tribe, his clan and his uh, parentage. So here are some of them. Firstly, the one that says that he was, he was never the son of illegitimacy. I am Muhammad. And whenever people divided off into two groups, God placed me in the better one. So from Adam on, whenever groups divided in history, the better one was always the one that Muhammad's ancestors were part of. I was born of my own parents and was tainted by none of the debauchery of the era before Islam. 
I was the product of true marriage, not fornication, right down from Adam to my father and my mother. I am the best of you in spirit and the best of you in parentage. And then he said, I was sent on through the best of generations of humankind, age after age, until I received my mission in a century in which I lived. And he said, from mankind he chose the Arabs, and from them the Mudar, and from the Mudar the Quraysh, that was his tribe, and from them the Bani Hashim, his clan. From the Bani Hashim he chose me. I am the choicest of the chosen. So whoever loves the Arabs, it's, it's through loving me that he loves them. And Gabriel, he said, said to me, said to Muhammad, I searched the earth from east to west, but found no man superior to Muhammad. And I searched the earth from east to west and found no tribe superior to the clan of Muhammad, the Banu Hashim. So Muhammad was validating himself and his call in the face of the denigration. And he was telling everyone that he was the best of the best. Now, other things began to go wrong. Um, his wife and Abu Talib both died in the same year. These were his main protectors. So it was a very tough year. And uh, his opponents became more hostile. Arab society is based around client relationships. So you, you, you really rely on, uh, on people looking after you. And losing these people was a, was a huge blow. So he began to try and recruit uh, protectors. The way he did this, he'd go to the fairs, the, the, the public markets that would happen at different times of year, and he'd invite the visiting tribes into Islam. He'd say, I'm a prophet. He'd call them to believe and ask them to protect him. He approached one tribe... But they said, I think you want us to protect you from the Arabs with our own breasts, with our own lives. And then if God gives you the benefit, someone else will, will, will you know, reap, reap the advantages if God gives you the victory. So they said, no, thank you. We're not interested in, in giving our lives for you. Muhammad went to a, a town uh, near Mecca called Taif, and he sought protection against the Quraysh, his own tribe. But they mocked him. And one of them said, couldn't God have found someone better than you to send? And another said, by God... Don't let me ever speak to you. If you're an apostle from God, you're too important for me to speak to. But if you're lying, I shouldn't speak to you either. So they made fun of him. And Muhammad asked them not to tell anybody else what they said to him. Please don't tell other people you've said that. But they ignored him and they chased him away with a mob and threw stones at him. So things weren't looking very good for Muhammad at all. Actually, at that story, when he came back, it, it said that some, some jinns, some, some, some demons believed in him. They became Muslims at the time. Anyway, there was a, another trade fair in Mecca and a group of pe visitors from the town of Medina did pledge loyalty to Muhammad and they began to pray on Fridays and they, they, they swore that they wouldn't steal or commit fornication or kill their children or slander others, but they didn't yet promise protection. But later, um, they, they did promise protection. The first pledge is called the Pledge of Women because they didn't make a commitment to fight for Muhammad. But the next year, a larger group came and they decided that they would support Muhammad. And it, it is said in the, his biography that they undertook to wage war in complete obedience to Muhammad. And then after this, Muhammad and his followers migrated to Medina to have a safe haven. In fact, Muhammad had to escape through a back window of Abu Bakr's house in order to get uh, to Medina unscathed because they, the Meccans were trying to, trying to kill him. So it's a pretty tough beginning. Uh, only the humble poor believed in him with a few exceptions. He was mocked and reviled, threatened, humiliated, and he had to flee. He was unsure of himself. He feared rejection. He thought about committing suicide. He had these satanic verses. But despite all these difficulties, he persevered and he gradually acquired a group of followers. Now, it's an interesting thing. Many people say that Muhammad was peaceful in Mecca, but only violent later in Medina. 
he might have been peaceful in his actions because he had no one who would protect him, who would fight for him. Um, But in fact, in Mecca, there are message after message in which he's roasting all his enemies in hell. He's really giving them the hard time. Um, He speaks about the fire of Allah will be roaring over their hearts, coming down on them in columns outstretched. Um, Another man said that... uh, uh, another man who was wealthy who wouldn't help him and said he was a liar he said that um, he will be roasted in the fire even the one that called lies to Muhammad someone said that he was inventing revelations and Muhammad uh, declared that they'll be pitched into the fire of hell plunging down into hell someone accused Muhammad of sorcery and uh, he said that they'll be dragged on their faces through the fires of hell Someone said that um, uh, Muhammad was not a warner, said from Allah, and refused to accept it. And so he had a a, a revelation that they'll be uh, thrown into hell as it's boiling and bursting asunder with rage over them. And uh, they will then be deeply regretting that they didn't follow the warning of Muhammad. Uh, A Meccan used to mock him and say that he was telling fairy tales and, and legends. And he said, when they're roasting at hell, they'll be told... This is Muhammad that you cried lies to now that you're roasting in hell. Uh, Some people said that Muhammad was mad and uh, and was telling fairy tales. And Allah said to him, you're not possessed. And uh, it says that when they're in hell, uh, they will be suffering and they'll be told uh, that this, you you, you said no to Muhammad's, uh, to to the prophet of Allah. So again and again, you see these judgment verses anticipating what's going to happen to the people that reject Muhammad. And one of the most um, poignant ones is um, uh, the sinners uh, who've been attacking Muhammad, they'll be in hell, these people that used to wink at each other, he said. It says, this is chapter 83 in the Quran. And um, they, will be, they will be in the fire of hell, but the believers will be in paradise and they'll look down at, the, at those that rejected Muhammad while they're being tortured in hell. And... Um, so uh, the, the, the people that rejected Muhammad will be getting water from a boiling fountain, uh, whereas those that have followed Muhammad will be in the beautiful paradise. So you can understand that the people in Mecca who were hearing these things being said were not happy at all with what Muhammad had to say. Also, it's not just a matter of judgment. In fact, Muhammad was already threatening violence in Mecca. Um, and uh, he said to them at one point... Um, uh, when they came to him to rebuke him, uh, he said to them, I bring you slaughter, that is, I'm going to kill you. And they said to him, oh, you're not so violent, you're not a violent man. And later a group of them came to him and he said that he was killed, they warned him that he was threatened to kill people who rejected him. Muhammad alleges that if you um, don't follow him, you'll be slaughtered. And when you're raised from the dead, you'll be in the fire of hell. And Muhammad said, yes, that's true. I do say that's the case. And you are one of them. And he threw dust on the head. So actually in Mecca... He was already declaring that he was going to kill them. So you can understand why they didn't like him. So even before Muhammad migrated to Mecca, the program was clear to his, uh, his pagan opponents. Anyway, when Muhammad went to Mecca, the Quran revealed that it was time to fight. Permission is given to those who fight because they were wronged. Surely Allah is able to help them who were expelled from their habitations without right, except to say our Lord is Allah. Surely Allah will help him who helps him. So this is chapter 22 of the Quran. Um, Ibn Kathir's commentary speaks about the wisdom of God in withholding fighting until Muhammad went to Medina. Allah prescribed jihad at an appropriate time because when they were in Mecca, 
the idolaters outnumbered them by 10 to 1. If they'd engaged in fighting at this time, the results would have been disastrous. But when they went to Medina and Muhammad joined them, they gathered around him and lent their support, and that's where Islam prevailed, a stronghold to which they could retreat. And at that time, Allah prescribed jihad against the enemy. So out of the crucible of rejection and persecution comes the Muslim community's resolve to make war against Muhammad's opponents. Now, one of the really striking things about the Quran is it has a lot to say about winners and losers. Again and again, these are mentioned in, in, in the Quran. For example, um, those who care for their relatives and for the vulnerable will be winners. They'll do well. But those who reject Muhammad will be losers. In fact, the, 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 the talk of losers increases as you get closer to the uh, Medina period. The truces come from me, from thy Lord. So be not one of the doubters, nor be those who cry lies to Allah's signs, that is, who say Muhammad's a liar, so as not to be losers. I'd like to just reflect a bit about the meaning of persecution, or the word fitna in Arabic. Early on, Muhammad was persecuted, and his followers as well. It's from the word fatana, which means to turn away, or to tempt, or seduce, or subject to trials, like testing a metal by fire. Actually, the Greek temptation, peresmos, is based on a very similar concept. But in Islamic understanding, fitna could mean a whole range of things. It could mean um, torture, but it could also mean seducing someone or trying to persuade them. Fitna becomes a very important idea in early Islam, how to respond to people that don't accept Islam and won't go along with the program. And uh, certainly Muhammad and his community were exposed to a lot of fitna or pressure while they were in Mecca. But afterwards, fighting was revealed, and it's explained in the textbooks that the whole purpose of fighting and jihad was to get rid of fitna, to remove anything that would make it hard for a Muslim to follow his faith. So we have in chapter 2, Fight in the way of Allah with those who fight against you and aggress not. Allah loves not the aggressors. Slay them whenever you find them and expel them from where they expelled you. Persecution is more grievous than slaying. Fitna is worse than killing. So this revelation says that it's, it's, it's worse to persecute a Muslim or cause him to lose his faith than to kill non-Muslims. And then, and then the verse comes, fight them until there's no persecution. So then this word in Arabic means to kill. Fight to kill until there's no more fitna, until there's nothing that causes a Muslim to lose his faith. So this idea that fitna is worse than killing is a very significant one. It's repeated again in an attack on a Meccan caravan during the sacred months and also fight them until there's no more fitna. So these, these phrases, these ideas, reveal that jihad is justified by the, obstacle of any, by the existence of any obstacle to people entering or staying in Islam. However grievous it might be to shed the blood of others, obstructing Islam is worse. So Muhammad's response to experiences of persecution or obstacles was to say, obstructing me in my faith is worse than me killing you. That's what you would call an aggressive response. So fighting should continue until no Muslim is persecuted so that he abandons his religion. And then the concept of persecution becomes very, very broad. In fact, just the existence of disbelief can be persecution of Muslims. We see this in Ibn Kathir's commentary. Since jihad involves killing and shedding of blood of men, Allah indicated that these polytheists are committing disbelief, committing disbelief in Allah, associating with him, that is, believing in other gods, and hindering Muslims from his path. And this is a much greater evil and more disastrous than killing. So disbelieving is worse than killing.
and being killed. So this becomes a universal mandate to kill disbelievers. It's very important to understand that the, the violent response of Muhammad is based in and response to his, uh, his experience of persecution. Muhammad Taki Usmani, one of the greatest uh, jurists in the world today and the deputy uh, leader of the International Fiqh Academy of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, said this, The purpose of jihad aims at breaking the grandeur of unbelievers and establishing that of Muslims. As a result, no one will dare to show any evil design against Muslims on one side, and on the other side, people subdued from the grandeur of Islam will have an open mind to think over the blessings of Islam. I think that all the religious scholars have established the same concept about the purpose of jihad. So what he's saying is that the purpose of jihad is to make Islam completely dominant so that no one will have any obstacle to becoming a Muslim and anyone who's a Muslim will have absolutely no inducement to leave Islam. So this is a quite a disturbing, uh, disturbing uh, view. So Muhammad begins with self-rejection, with a sense of, of, of fear and anxiety, even thoughts of suicide. He wondered whether he was possessed. Later we see these self-validating reactions you say I'm just a shepherd boy, all the prophets have been shepherds. You say I'm illegitimate, I've never had an illegitimate ancestor going all the way back to Adam. Um, you say I'm a liar, uh, you'll be roasting in hell when you realise that I'm not, and, and so on and so forth. But finally, the self-validating responses begin to be replaced by violent responses, aggressive responses. It's very striking that one of the, the ways people respond to rejection is through striving. A very striving person who's always striving all the time, that can be a response to rejection. Well, jihad means to strive, and it becomes the solution to this uh, experience. The, the scholar Muir uh, said that persecution, though it may sometimes have deterred the timid from joining his ranks, was eventually of unquestionable service to Muhammad. It furnishes a plausible excuse for casting aside the garb of tolerance, for opposing force to force against those who obstructed the ways of the Lord, and at last for the compulsory conversion of unbelievers. So what we see when Muhammad moves to Medina is retribution becomes one of his major concerns. Um, and he also develops doctrines that those who are involved in this program, who are fighting, who are seeking to be agents of Allah's retribution, would, would go to paradise. Old family ties were dissolved, and Muhammad begins to wreak vengeance on his enemies. Um, he begins to attack the, the, the Arabs and attacks them during the, the, the sacred month, which up until then had been a taboo. In fact, Allah reveals to him that uh, although it's bad to fight in the sacred month, it's much better to stop people from being Muslims and to encourage disbelief. So that justifies killing and attacking Arabs during the sacred month. And then there's another battle at, at Badr where he um, takes a large force of Muslims to attack a caravan. The Meccans get wind of this and they send out a lot of soldiers as well and there's a famous battle which Muhammad wins. And there's a, very, there's a few telling incidents in this. One is there's a guy called uh, Uqba who'd earlier thrown camel dung and intestines on Muhammad. He was captured and pleaded for his life. He said, but who will look after my children, O Muhammad? And Muhammad says, hell, and then has this man killed. And the bodies of the killed Meccan are thrown into a pit at Badr after Badr. And Muhammad goes to the pit in the middle of the night and he's mocking them and he's calling them, you people of the pit. Um, he'd warned them uh, earlier on that they'd be in hell, so he, he speaks to them and he says, you called me a liar when others believed you, you cast me out when others took me in, you fought against me when others fought on my side. And then he said, Have you, haven't you found by now that what Allah threatened is true? I've found what the Lord has promised me is true, that is, I've killed you. 
His companions were overhearing him and someone said, why are you talking to dead bodies in the middle of the night, Muhammad? And he said that these, uh, these dead Quraysh, these people that opposed him, now knew that what Allah had warned them was true and he said they, they, they can hear what I'm saying but they can't answer me back. So Muhammad really was savouring that retribution against those that had mocked him earlier and saying, I told you so, there you go. Later he conquers Mecca and uh, he actually spares the people of Mecca except for um, a, a number of people who'd made fun of him and uh, made up funny songs about him. He declares that they should be killed, including a couple of, of slave girls. And what's really striking about this Meccan hit list is that he targets those who were the sources of fitna, who were using mockery against him and would undermine Muslims' faith by making fun of Muhammad. So he establishes this principle that if someone makes fun of Muhammad, they should be at the top of those who are meant to be killed. Uh, there were some Arabs who'd become Muslims, and, um, but later they renounced Islam and they killed the Muslim who was with them and they apostatized from Islam. So when Muhammad uh, had them captured, when they were captured, they were brought to Muhammad. He put their eyes out with heated irons and their feet and hands were cut off and he left them in the sun until they died. And, um, and there's a verse in the Quran that justifies that act. So it's very striking the extent of these mutilations and the torture of these people that had rejected Muhammad. The purpose was not just to kill them, but to degrade them as retribution for opposing Allah and his messenger, as it says in chapter 5. It's very interesting in the commentary on this verse, chapter 5, verse 33, Ibn Kathir um, speaks about this phrase from, from the Quran that this is a punishment for waging war against Allah. And Ibn Kathir says, 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 what is waging war? He says, rejecting faith in him. Wage war means to oppose or contradict and it includes disbelief, blocking roads, spreading fear in the fairways, mischief in the land, refers to various kinds of evil. So what's the penalty for opposing and contradicting Allah? According to chapter 5, verse 33 to 34, it says, they shall be slaughtered or crucified, and their hands and feet will be alternatively struck off, or they shall be banished from the land. Um, another part of the story here is that uh, Muhammad does a, a treaty with the Meccans, the Treaty of Hurabiyyah. And um, as it happens, um, Muhammad breaks the treaty. They're supposed to return people from either side who come to each of, of, of the other sides. And, but Muhammad, when some women come over to him, he, he refuses to return them. So he breaks, he breaks the treaty with them. And uh, it, it's very interesting that often Muslim commentators will say that the Meccans were at fault for breaking the treaty, but actually it was Muhammad that broke it first. And that really shows that there's nothing good except what's advantageous to Islam. You can do what you like in order to promote the cause. Another very interesting part of Muhammad's story to do with rejection is his treatment of the Jews. And just, uh, it's a big topic. I'm just going to deal with it quite briefly. Um, earlier on, he thought that since he was a prophet in the long line of prophets, when the Jews realized that he was a prophet, they would, in mass numbers, come over to him and acknowledge him as a prophet and accept him as their, as their king, really. Um, but instead, uh, they, they disagreed with him and they would argue with him. And uh, when he went to Medina, there was a covenant that the Jews were a party to. Um, they were supposed to be loyal to him, but in fact, they opposed him. There's a lot of discussions in, uh, in the life of Muhammad, and it's reflected in the Quran, of the meetings that Muhammad had with the Jewish rabbis. It says the Jewish rabbis showed hostility to the apostle in envy, hatred, and malice because God had chosen his apostle from the Arabs. So 
apparently the Jews were jealous of Muhammad, and they used to annoy him with questions and, uh, and introduce confusion and confound the truth with falsity, so it says. Um, they questioned his biblical references and said he hadn't got the Bible right. Um, the, Muhammad found their questions troublesome, and uh, he got various verses in the Quran to answer them. So lots of the verses in chapter 2 are responses to those. And a lot of those responses are self-validating responses. Um, uh, for example, Allah says to him, you know, uh, don't let that upset you. You know, you, they, are, they are lying. They're not telling the truth. And they hear the word of God, but they, they, won't, they won't accept it. And even Ishak, the biographer of Muhammad, calls these these rabbis, the men who asked questions as if that was a terrible thing to do and were stirring up trouble, trying to extinguish it. Well, Muhammad then reacts very aggressively to the Jews. He begins to drive them out. The Quran says that they were turned into monkeys and pigs. And there's lots of verses that abuse them in the Quran. Um, and then finally, uh, he, uh, he declares a war against, against the Jews and curses them in the Quran. They're said to be the, the greatest enemies of Islam. They do not love Muslims. They start war and troubles. They say that God has a son. They're cursed because they said Allah has a weak hand. They love this life more than the next. They claim that they killed the Messiah. He accused the Jews of claiming that they'd killed the Messiah. And then there's this violence that happens. And uh, he announces to his Muslim followers in, in, in Medina, kill any Jew that falls into your power begins to assassinate them and then makes this declaration, drives them out of Medina and finally there's a tribe in Medina that he wipes out in, in a genocide. And uh, it's, uh, he says, then he attacks the Jews in Kaiba and his, his nephew Ali says, why are we fighting them? What issue? What, are we, what have we got against these Jews in Kaiba? And Muhammad said, fight until they testify that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger and then when they do that, their blood and their, and their property is protected from you. So he, he hoped they would validate him. When they rejected him, he attacked them and wiped them out. Another thing that's very interesting about the story of Muhammad is, that, um, is this victimology. Um, if you take the idea that uh, killing is worse, sorry, um, uh, undermining a Muslim's faith is worse than killing, then anything that would kind of distress a Muslim or make life hard for a Muslim is worse than slaughter. And the effect of that is that you have to kind of play up and emphasize the victimhood of Muslims. So you'll see that the, the history books that Muslims write about the attacks on the Jews of Medina will emphasize how wicked and awful those Jews are. But the closer you get to the original sources, the less that there's evidence of that. So there's a tendency to blame the victim. Um, it's a not uncommon pattern, for example, uh, when Hitler was uh, seeking to wipe out the Jews, he emphasized how deserving the Jews were of that, of that penalty. If you're a, an abuser and you're, you're bashing your wife, you will say, she deserves it. You know? and, so, and I'm the victim. The abuser will say, I'm being victimized by, by this woman that I'm beating. So this idea of the we are the victims becomes almost a theme of Islam. And uh, it's, it's driven by this... Uh, Fitna is worse than slaughter idea. It's a theological root that creates this effect. And you'll see this in Islamic writings. For example, Yahya Emmerich in The Complete Idiot's Guide to Understanding Islam says this, Muhammad kept his, his treaty with the Jews at all times. Um, and many Jews converted to Islam of their own free will. He never forced any conversions, nor did he act in an unjust manner. The expulsion of the three organized Jewish tribes was due to their own duplicity and treachery. So that's an example of 
of blaming the victims. He's speaking about people that were killed in the end by Muhammad. Um, there was a debate on Al Jazeera television between Dr. Wafa Sultan and Professor Ahmad bin Muhammad, who was the Algerian professor of religious politics. And in the middle of the debate, um, Wafa Sultan challenges him with times when Muslims have killed their own. And then the professor begins shouting, We are the victims! There are millions of innocent people among us Muslims, while the innocent among you number only dozens, hundreds, or thousands at the most. So if there are ever any victims, there's always more vic- Muslim, Muslim victims. There was a famous um, article by Pikthal, who was an early convert earlier in the, in the 20th century, and he was speaking about the genocide of the Armenians, and Muslims obviously been blamed for that. And he said, he said a similar thing, that... Uh, Whenever you look at history and you find that Muslims have, had, that have created some victims amongst others, if you look more carefully, you'll find that the Muslims always had more victims than the non-Muslims. So this is actually an ideological belief. It's a, it's a theological position that we are the victims. We are the victims. And this is based in the life and the story of Muhammad. These dynamics were manifested... Uh, in the reactions to the knighting of Salman Rushdie by Queen Elizabeth in 2007. Lord Ahmed in the House of Lords in, in the UK, in the English Parliament, objected to Salman Rushdie being knighted because he said Salman Rushdie had blood on his hands. But you have to ask, who, whose blood and who shed it? In fact, the translators of uh, Rushdie's books were assassinated and Muslims died, died in the riots, but the pers- people that had blood on their hands were the killers not Salman Rushdie. So you blame the victims of the attack, that is, Salman Rushdie and those that supported him for being killed. And um, the Pakistani religious ministers, uh, affairs minister, Ijaz ul-Haq, uh, uh, said that Rushdie had hurt the sentiments, that, that the Queen had hurt the sentiments of 1.5 billion Muslims. And he said that if someone exploded a bomb on his body, he would be right to do so unless the British government apologises and withdraws the Sir title, cancels the knighthood. So this is this principle that fitna, in this case dishonouring Muslims by honouring Rushdie, is worse than slaughter in the form of suicide bombing. Raising up Rushdie justifies suicide bombing. So what do we make of Muhammad? He had been rejected. Rejected in his family origins, rejected by his relatives, rejected by life circumstances, rejected by the pagans of Mecca, rejected by the Jews. It's a very painful story. I mean, if someone came to you with the sort of background that Muhammad has, they'd need a lot of therapy and it'd take a long time. But the sad thing is that Muhammad responds with all of the classical rejection responses. Self-rejection early on, painful to watch. And then later, self-validation, You say I'm illegitimate, I've never had an illegitimate ancestor all the way back to Adam. You say I'm a liar, you're going to be roasting in hell and you'll find out who's the liar. And then finally, these aggressive responses. And a worldview is established where non-Muslims are always guilty of the jihad that's waged against them, where Muslims are always the victims, where non-Muslims are deceivers and pact breakers. Muslim can break their pacts, that's regarded as wisdom and maybe prophylactic action. But if non-Muslims break their pacts, that's proof that they're deceivers and wicked. Non-Muslims whose lives are spared should be grateful because it's Islam that spares their life in the midst of their guilt and their deceit. And non-Muslims are meant to be treated as inferior, cursed and destined to fuel hell. 
So this offensive doctrine of fitna is developed that says that anything that undermines the Muslim faith must be wiped out. This is the basis theologically for the Dhimma Pact, which imposes inferiority on Muslims so that Muslims will be lifted up and we always will be seen to be superior. Muhammad's experiences of rejection and reactions to it forms the, the, the ideological and the spiritual basis for all of the denigration and humiliation of non-Muslims living under Islamic law. The Quran reveals itself as Muhammad's own intensely personal document, a record of Muhammad's growing sense of hostility and aggression in the face of the rejection. And we see that the attributes that are imposed upon non-Muslims, such as guilt, uh, silence, inferiority and gratitude, can all be based in the evolution of Muhammad's own responses to rejection, his violent and comprehensive ideological imposition of failure and rejection on those who refuse to confess that they believe that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Muhammad the orphan becomes the orphan maker. Muhammad the rejected one becomes the great rejecter. In our next lecture, we will consider the example of Jesus Christ and how he responded to all the rejections that he experienced.